I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And this week, we do this about once a month, we're looking at the science behind the headlines. On the menu, as Donald Trump is treated for coronavirus infection, what have we learned about managing COVID since the pandemic started? Also, the Nobel Prizes are out, so who has won what? And David Attenborough's new film's launched. We'll hear a bit of it and we'll talk to the executive producer. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. With me this week are one of the world's leading paleoanthropologists. He's at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, and that's Lee Berger. We also have the British Medical Journal's executive editor, Theo Bloom. So hello to both of you. Great to have you with us. Hi, Chris. And between us, we'll be talking to a range of guests who are going to be joining us over the next hour. Lee, I think it's actually this year 13 years, almost to the day, since we first met in Johannesburg. 13, unlucky for some, but definitely not for you. I gather that you've discovered not one, not two, not three, but now four new species of of ancient human ancestor. It's only three new species so far. So we'll work on that, though, with these new discoveries. I'm in the middle of a discovery right now. Um, COVID kind of pushed us into a strange space. I had to figure out something to do when we could get back once our lockdown levels of COVID actually lowered here in South Africa. And I'd already dispersed my my laboratories. And there was this site that we had discovered early on in the exploration uh, activities back in 2013. And it was a difficult site. It was going to be a site that was hard to work. It was going to be a site that, that had every reason. It was dangerous that I didn't do it. And I, I decided to take a chance on it. Day one, we hit an extraordinary discovery that, that we're in the middle of right now. And so this is really a, the third big discovery that we've had. It's full of hominids. And we're very fortunate to be able to work under these conditions. So this is a cave site. Is this where Homo naledi, the, the smaller ancestors that were burying their dead, came from or is this a different site this site's 200 meters away from where we discovered homo naledi it's a different cave system it was right in front of us it's an entirely different kind of creature from homo naledi it's a big toothed hominid it's extraordinary and how old is this i have no idea this this whole discovery is three and a half weeks old well you heard about it here on the naked scientist first theo over to you for a second what has it been like running a medical journal during COVID. We've heard from Lee what it's like to try and do field work and actually make extraordinary discoveries and leaps forward. What's it been like at the BMJ? Busy is is the one word that comes to mind. I mean, we probably, most medical journals have seen a 10 to 100 fold increase in submissions of papers with people very anxious to get out their latest findings about COVID. And we've had to sort of scale up to handle those and of course we've been trying to get results out very quickly if they're important that the public needs to know as, as soon as possible so we're we're working around the clock and a lot of my colleagues working you know at home with small children and nevertheless trying to uh, do more hours than they ever did before it's a, it's a busy time uh, do you has it been a mixed bag in terms of the quality of what you've received have you received some stuff that you think my goodness that's amazing and have you also received some stuff that makes you go my goodness i can't believe someone actually sent that to a journal did their toddler write this 
yes, I mean, we we pretty much always get a range of quality. I think what's happening now, though, is that everyone thinks every single finding about COVID is really, really important, and they want to get it out as fast as possible, maybe when it's not quite ready. Of course, the, the most recent high-profile person who has succumbed to the new coronavirus is Donald Trump, and his doctors, interestingly, have put him on a whole raft of different treatments, including an antibody therapy made by the American company Regeneron, also a number of other drugs and supplements. It has been unclear, though, how ill he actually has been. Some are saying he's actually been downplaying his symptoms. It's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. And it's a very interesting thing. And I'm going to be letting you know about it. Charlotte Summers is an intensive care consultant. She's at Adambrook's Hospital in Cambridge. She also advises the UK government on managing the condition. Charlotte, what, what was your reaction to the cocktail of treatments that the President of the United States was or appears to have been given? I have to say I was quite surprised. They perhaps weren't the first drugs necessarily that I would have reached for had I been one of the doctors looking after him. I think most controversially is probably the Regeneron therapy that he had, which is a cocktail of two antibodies um, that are designed to neutralise the virus. Um, And actually, the company that makes those had only released the first data on this a few days before they were given to the president. And it was only based on 275 patients. And the clinical trials are ongoing. So we don't actually know whether this therapy works or not. So I was slightly surprised that a very experimental therapy, which although it looks promising, isn't proven, was given to the President of the United States. The rationale for using antibodies is, of course, that's what your own immune system makes when you have an infection. And if you give people those, perhaps it will help to soak up some virus and bolster your own immune response. Have we not, though, seen something of a chequered response to the, the convalescent plasma therapy that has been done for some time since this began, where people are taking blood products from people who have recovered from coronavirus and giving them to people at high risk of severe disease? And it's not clear that that's actually working. So why do we think these Regeneron, or, or I know AstraZeneca are also making a rival product, aren't they? Why do we think that, that this is actually worth pursuing? The issue with convalescent plasma is that everybody makes a different level of immune response. Some people make a very low level of antibody response. Some people make much higher. And lots of the data that's been generated with convalescent plasma studies um, has not been terribly clear about the amount of antibodies in the therapy that's been given. But convalescent plasma has been given by two big trials in the UK that are ongoing at the moment, the recovery trial for people who are hospitalised. Uh, and the REMAP-CAP trial for people that are in intensive care. So we should get an answer from those fairly soon, I hope. The antibody therapies are, we know how much antibody you're giving, and we know that they are targeted to kind of try and neutralise the virus. Um, So it's slightly different type of antibodies to the general antibodies you might make in your plasma in response to having had the virus. So there's a slightly higher prospect that that they may be advantageous. The other thing that he got was dexamethasone. Tell us a bit about that. Dexamethasone is a steroid treatment um, that's quite widely used across a range of healthcare settings. But what was important was that this therapy is one that's got an evidence base. So the big UK clinical trial uh, called Recovery that lots of people will have heard of showed that there was a mortality benefit in people who needed oxygen 
people who are on ICU ventilators who were given dexamethasone. So their outcomes and their chances of survival were improved by having this therapy. People who weren't on oxygen, um, there was definitely no benefit and possibly even a potential that the therapy did some harm in that group of people. So I can't imagine that they gave the dexamethasone therapy to Donald Trump without him requiring oxygen. And we know that the reports about whether he did or didn't require oxygen have been a little bit confusing at times. Theo, you must have been party to quite a lot of data coming across your desk on drugs, including dexamethasone. Yes, I mean, there's been, I mean, I think at the moment there are several hundred trials of different drugs and therapies ongoing. And there's also been a lot of claims based on observation. So because so many people have been hospitalized and some of them happen to be taking drugs for something else. For example, there was a suggestion that one particular antacid that people take if they have stomach problems, people taking that in China in the first wave of COVID appeared to do slightly better than people who weren't taking it. And actually, that's one of the cocktail of drugs that uh, Donald Trump seems to have been given, although he may for, for be taking it anyway. This is yeah. formotidine, isn't it? The the renetidine-like yes. drug. Yeah, and he, but he may have been taking that anyway for some other condition we don't know. And so they seem to have sort of thrown a bunch of things at Donald Trump, some of which, uh, as Charlotte said, you would expect to treat severe illness with, and some, like the antibodies, you would treat early in the illness. And it just adds to this confusing picture of how long he's been ill, how seriously ill he was. And Charlotte, if you had been the physician to Donald Trump and you had to treat him or manage him, how would you have approached it? And also, what have we learned about how when someone comes in and they're acutely unwell with COVID, the actual disease caused by this virus, how we manage them now compared to how we would have been managing people back in March? It's slightly tricky to say exactly how I would have managed him and get it right, because I don't have all of the medical information available to me. I've just got what's in the press. But I would definitely have started with the therapies for which we've got evidence So if he needed oxygen, I would definitely have given him the dexamethasone. And if he was early on um, and had signs of pneumonia, so inflammation in his lungs on a chest x-ray, I would have given him remdesivir, the antiviral therapy that he did get, but a little bit later and after getting the Regeneron. And given that convalescent plasma actually has got an emergency use license in the United States, I would potentially have gone with that rather than the experimental Regeneron therapy although I would have tried to encourage him to be randomised into a clinical trial so that actually we could have learned something about the use of these therapies rather than just giving it on compassionate grounds. What about issues with giving people supplementary oxygen early and also this question about anticoagulation? Because we've learned, have we not, that quite a lot of people who get this infection have problems with their blood clotting going off. I'd have given him oxygen if he needed oxygen and actually there's advice across the world about the levels at which we should start giving people oxygen therapy that vary from between about 90 to 94 percent depending on how well you're monitored um so if his oxygen levels had dropped those kind of levels i would absolutely have given him the oxygen because that's important anticoagulation is more tricky and there's actually not strong consensus across the community of haematologists and other healthcare researchers about what the best approach is here. We know that patients with sepsis from any cause 
actually have an increased risk of getting blood clots. And coronavirus infection or COVID-19 has had a really big number of people with a sepsis type illness recently. So we've been seeing a lot of people with blood clots, but it's still not definite that the proportion of people with COVID getting blood clots is substantially greater than the people who have sepsis from other causes. But I think it probably is, but we don't have data to back that up. In terms of what we do about that, there isn't an evidence base to answer that question at the moment. There's an arm of a trial called REMAP-CAP that's looking at hospitalised ward patients in the UK to try and come up with an answer for that. And there are other trials in discussion across the world. But it's something that we don't have good evidence for. Should we give them things like aspirin? Should we thin the blood therapeutically? Should we just give them protection against developing clots? What's the best way to go is still a subject of great debate. Why do kittens, puppies and human animals play? From pets rough and tumbling with each other to team sports. Join me, Katie Haler, as I find out why larking about is so important for health. Check out Naked Neuroscience on the Naked Scientist website or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, does the amount of Neanderthal DNA in you affect your risk of COVID? We'll find out. And a new book about the extraordinary odds of us actually being here today. The Nobel Prizes for 2020 have been announced this week. Among the winning discoveries, the virus that causes significant liver disease, the gene editing technique called CRISPR, and a supermassive black hole. You always need a supermassive black hole. We're here to give us the official tour of the Nobels is BBC science correspondent Victoria Gill. Victoria, welcome to the programme. Hello, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thanks for joining us to give us this tour of the Nobels. Let's begin with Monday. The Nobel Assembly has today decided to award the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to Harvey J. Alter, Michael Horton and Charles M. Rice for the discovery of hepatitis C virus. So Vic, what did these men do? What have they actually discovered? It's this sort of beautiful stepwise series of discoveries of, well, hepatitis, the discovery of hepatitis C and also how to detect it that's led to blood tests that's led to treatments and cures and the possibility that this potentially lethal virus could be wiped out there's three types of hepatitis and hepatitis c up until the 70s was unknown but it was found that patients who had blood transfusions were getting this unknown cause of hepatitis so alter and his colleagues showed that blood from these hepatitis infected patients could transmit the disease to chimpanzees so he sort of showed this disease-causing agent in infected people's blood. Then Horton took that a step further by painstakingly isolating and collecting DNA fragments from these infected chimpanzees. So he, he found the code of the virus. And then Rice took it even further to show that it was actually this virus alone by itself that could cause hepatitis, inflammation of the liver, which can kill you. So it's this, this lovely sort of step by step from the 70s to the 90s that's got us from just this unknown cause of lethal liver inflammation to a point where we know exactly what's causing it, that that is the sole cause. And now we have a, a way of potentially wiping out this virus. We 
can certainly test for it very rapidly, treat it and cure it. Did you foresee Hep C making a Nobel this year, Theo? I wish I could say so, but I did read a prediction of it because I believe the uh, scientists involved had received some of what are seen as the precursor prizes. So they were certainly on the slate. It's an important problem, though, isn't it? The the anticipated burden of disease caused by hep C, 170 million people around the world, and it's a direct cause of liver cancer and liver disease. So it's pretty important as a pathogen. And the fact we now identified it and can eradicate it even, I mean, that, that I think is a prize well earned, isn't it? Absolutely. And it sort of bears comparison when we're all rather obsessed with one particular virus at the moment, how long it used to take to identify the virus causing a particular problem and then prove that that virus was the cause. And we have all taken for granted the fact that a new virus that emerged in China late last year, we can already identify it, know that it's causing disease with great certainty. And, you know, we will hope that we can vaccinate against it pretty soon. Lee, there's some suggestion, I mean, it's a number of years old now, this suggestion, but when you compare the genetic makeup of hep C and the genetic makeup of a certain group of viruses that infect dogs, some people have suggested that, in fact, dogs gave us hepatitis C. And it would have been the very close sort of proximity between us domesticating dogs and, and those dog owners initially that perhaps enabled that jump to happen. And a bit of a striking parallel. Theo's talking about the fact that we've identified COVID in record time, but the fact that we we could actually have a virus that's jumped out of bats and into people to cause COVID. We've got a virus that jumped out of bats and in, out, of, out of dogs and into people to cause hepatitis C. Uh, what do you think about that? As science has progressed so incredibly, particularly over the last decade, you know, we're going to be able to test that question. And we're not far from being able to do that. We have from the archaeological record and some genetic record that, you know, we've domesticated dogs inside of the last 30,000 years. And as we begin to get ancient DNA, we should be able to clock that and, and test the idea, you know, which came first, the hepatitis C or dog domestication. Well, let's move on to the Nobel Prize for Physics, which has also come out this week. One half to Roger Penrose for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. And the other half, jointly to Andrea Giz and Reinhard Genzel for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the center of our galaxy. That's one way of putting it, isn't it? The supermassive compact object at the centre of our galaxy. There was actually a lovely quote, Vic, from Christopher Berry, who's a physicist at Northwestern University, and it resonated with me because he said, black holes capture anything that gets too close for them. This is equally true about our fascination. Once you start learning about black holes, there can be no escape. So watch out. If you report on them too much, you might get sucked in. (laughs) That's really nice. I think my favourite response to the physics Nobel came from uh, another physicist, Paul Coxon at the University of Cambridge, who tweeted that awarding the physics Nobel for a supermassive chasm of infinite darkness is very (laughs) 2020. I thought really hit the nail on that. Um, But this was a fascinating one. Um, It's a a wonderful British scientist, 89 years old, Roger Penrose, who gets half this prize. And then the other half is shared between Reinhard Gensel and Andrea Goetz, who is only the fourth woman 
to win a physics Nobel. So it sort of encapsulates a lot of the, you know, intrinsic sort of problematic issues with the Nobels and this ongoing issue with the perpetuation of the problematic academic hierarchical system that the Nobels is kind of famous for. But it's also just this real celebration of absolutely fundamental science. What Roger Penrose did is sort of, I mean, to me, him sort of applying general relativity to come up with entirely new calculations, the fact that a black hole can be a a real thing, can actually form in the universe, is kind of another level of thinking for me. Well, let's move straight on to chemistry, because that was the, the third and final prize that was announced this week. Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna for the development of a method for genome editing. This is, of course, the technique otherwise known as CRISPR. Did you see that one coming, Theo? I think this one looked very likely at some point because the CRISPR-Cas9 technique has so revolutionised the way that uh, researchers can edit DNA, including the fact that we believe that someone actually used it illegally and unethically to edit the DNA in unborn children. But it's clearly something that has changed the whole way that molecular biology is done. And in contrast to that hepatitis C work from the 1970s to the 1990s, and which, by the way, went to three men, this prize has gone to two women for work done in the past decade. And that's exciting on both counts, I think. By studying basic biology, they've come up with what is a tool that has changed basic science already and is likely to change medicine as well. Vic, how does CRISPR actually work? What does it involve? What will it enable us to do? It's actually the ancient immune system of a bacteria, which essentially has this component called tracer RNA, which cleaves, it snips out a bit of DNA from whatever is attacking it. So it's, it basically kills what is attacking it. Its immune system has this pair of genetic scissors. And what these two amazing scientists have done, and they collaborated together to kind of bring together their genetic knowledge and their molecular biology. This is the real kind of chemistry of life stuff. They got together to figure out how to simplify that bacterial immune system, this this cleavage, into a pair of much simpler molecular genetic scissors that can be used anywhere. Essentially, you can, just as if you were editing a piece of tape and you can snip out a bit and then stick it back together, you can do that with a genetic code. So you can just imagine, actually, the Swedish Academy themselves said that it's only imagination that holds back the limitations of what we could do with this technology. I think another important postscript to that is that our morals and ethics is also going to play a big role in terms of what humans will do with this technology, because the the possibilities uh, molecularly are boundless. Victoria, thank you very much. That's Victoria Gill. She is the BBC's science correspondent. Thanks to the pandemic, we're entering a world that's more online and thanks to what many are calling the fourth industrial revolution, it's a world that's much more automated and data-driven. Jim Gazzard's director of the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and has been very much at the forefront and the front line of having to respond educationally to the challenges thrown our way by COVID. He's with us now. Hello, Jim. Hi, Chris. Jim, we've seen in the news stories of universities which have got huge outbreaks of COVID among their students now. We hope that Cambridge University isn't going to join their ranks. But just before we get into the educational side of things, do you think it was the the right 
decision to get young people back into university? Would they not have been better off at home doing online lessons? I think it's it's a very finely balanced decision. You mentioned young people, and I think that that's key. These are people who are needing to get on with their life, needing to get on with their education, and they're at relatively low risk. So returning to halls of residence, returning to small group teaching, I think is probably on balance the most sensible decision. But I'm interested in adult education. Of course, it's a little bit different, perhaps, for people who are in their 40s or 50s or 60s or um, students with health conditions. So we decided to uh, deliver all of our continuing education, certainly for undergraduate courses, fully online this year. How has, though, the kind of response to learning worked out? Because some people have been saying to me that they go home at the end of the day and they're a bit zoomed out, square-eyed from staring at screens all day. Exactly that, that, you know, if they've been on Teams all day or Zoom, then it is quite difficult. So we're trying to break up the learning into smaller chunks and to engage in different ways. What we are hearing from students is, particularly because of the the global recession that goes along with the pandemic, is that there's a real necessity about learning, whether that's about an enforced career change, whether it's actually a concern about whether skills and knowledge are contemporary. So we've seen a real growth in enrolments. I mean, we're we're over 50% up year on year. And I think this is being mirrored globally. I think sometimes it's for positive reasons, because people have used lockdown to really think about what they want to do with their futures. But as mentioned, it's also for some of these more challenging reasons. Lee, what's been the experience uh, at uh, WITS in Joburg? The teaching's been very good, but we have in the developing world a different challenge that our students can't afford the bandwidth in the way that the developed world can. You know, Wi-Fi, Internet is not as freely available. So all of our teaching tends to be recorded in advance and we limit the the interaction and i think that's a really sad thing the you know because like many of you i miss that one on one interaction it's the things that happen during the course of a lecture as you follow the students and they challenge you that is the point of of higher education you were quite early to this sort of party though because when you started making the stupendous discoveries that you have in south africa rather than squirrel these findings away in a lab and work on them in isolation for the rest of your career, you actually said, no, I'm going to scan them and I'm going to put all this data on the internet so people would download and 3D print their own homeowner ledgy or Australopithecus sediba. And people are. <laughs> that was just trying to move some of the fighting in this field of paleoanthropology by showing the evidence, you know, making the evidence available. We were also there very early in, in, in going live with the science, experimenting with how do you go live? How do you communicate science in an authentic way that also doesn't lose the trust in science because we make mistakes along the way? Here is uh, the UK's Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Let's hear what he had to say earlier this week. Our economy is now likely to undergo a more permanent adjustment. We need to create new opportunities and allow the economy to move forward. And that means supporting people to be in viable jobs which provide genuine security. I suppose, Jim, that those sorts of statements are both an opportunity and also a curse for someone in your position because some things that you may have been anticipating training people for 
may not actually exist as viable jobs in Rishi Sunak's words, but there may now be new opportunities, new things potentially that people want training in, which someone delivering online and an adult education is an opportunity there. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Chris. There are opportunities and, and threats. If we want to be serious about uh, science and technology, not only do we need to continue training PhD level scientists, but we need to think about technician level science support. So I think there's going to be some very exciting opportunities in those areas in life science, in physical science, and looking at data analytics, looking at coding. But yes, I, I think there's going to be creative destruction that's being accelerated around COVID. And we're seeing so-called white collar jobs that would be exciting professional opportunities even only 10 or 15 years ago. Technology is overtaking with algorithms and machine learning. As an educationalist interested in life-wide and lifelong learning, it is a really interesting time. But I understand it's, it, it's a really scary time as well when I think the norms of employment within an economy um, in the UK, for example, they're, they're going to change very rapidly. And uh, we have to be ready to respond to that as universities and education and training providers. What's your view on this, Theo? As has just been said, it's going to be so interesting to see how computers get better at doing the the menial things that we do, ranging from driving a car to assessing an, an x-ray, and how are we going to train people to work around the changing changing world of work, particularly, unfortunately, when we face a global economic crisis brought on by COVID. It's interesting that both you and, and Jim, just before you, brought up computers and coding, because that also made headlines this week, didn't it, unfortunately? Public Health England have admitted tonight that nearly 16,000 cases of coronavirus between the 25th of September and the 2nd of October were not included in daily figures for that period and not transferred to the contact tracing system. I think one word springs to mind, Jim. Whoops. Um, how did that happen? That is a really interesting point. I mean, if we are to believe what we've been told, this was about an Excel spreadsheet that uh, hadn't been transferred into the main data repository. I mean, obviously, I don't know how it happened, but I, I, I would bring this back to skills and training. We need people who have digital skills and we need to be able to design systems that, that work properly. And just very briefly, with your eye on your crystal ball, which I'm sure you have there in your office, what, what do you foresee as, as where we will be from a university point of view as, as the university sector in a year's time? Do you think that organisations like the one that you're running will be at the forefront and it's going to very much be online? Or do you think we'll solve this COVID problem and it'll be bums on seats back in lecture theatres? Are these changes here to stay? Yeah, I, I think this is going to change universities profoundly. I, I think there's been probably 20 or 30 years in the UK and Western economies where we've perhaps, I don't know, lost our way a little bit. I think we've got to redefine what universities are for. We need to train the next generation of technicians, as I've mentioned, and really thinking about the fourth industrial revolution what new jobs, what new roles will be created? Perhaps half of the jobs that will be around in 10 years don't currently exist right now. So what we have to think about in universities is critical thinking and synthesis of ideas 
and creativity and working with new ideas in different ways. And I think that that means we perhaps have to get out of discipline silos and think interdisciplinary learning. So I hope universities will view this as a real opportunity. I, I genuinely think it is, but I think we've got to think about learning as a life-wide activity. The skills that we learn at university, if you're 18 or 19, the half-life of those skills now might be three or four years. So you're going to have to learn again in your mid-20s, your early 30s, your 40s. You might have to change career in your 50s or 60s. And we might have to carry on working until we're 70, 75 or 80. So I think we've got to recondition our learning and, and the way that we think about learning to respond to how society and technology is changing. That's a wonderful crystal ball you have there. It works very well. Jim, thanks ever so much. That's Jim Gazard, the director of ICE at the University of Cambridge. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. With me are Lee Berger and Theo Bloom. On the way, David Attenborough's new film paints a very poignant picture of what we're doing to the planet. We're going to hear a bit from it and we'll also hear from the executive producer. Looking backwards in time a bit now, we're going to look at a whole train of unlikely coincidences in our history that, fortuitously for us, mean that we are actually all here. This is the subject of a new book. It's by evolutionary biologist Sean Carroll. It's called A Series of Fortunate Events. And Sean's with us to tell us, Sean, welcome. What are these events? Well, it's a series of cosmological, geological and biological accidents that really explain both collectively how we all got here and individually. Some of these events are as great as the asteroid impact 66 million years ago, without which probably mammals would still be an obscure group of, a- of animals on the planet. And we certainly wouldn't be having this conversation right down to the sorting of chromosomes, if I may say, and our parents' gonads and uh, the unique genetic combinations that come from that. We're each a one in 70 trillion event with respect to our parents. Okay, well, let's sort of wind the clock back then. We are here today, and we also have with us Lee Berger, paleoanthropologist, who can also help us out with some of the human evolution. But we've been here for really what's the blink of an eye. So where does the we as anatomically modern humans stop? And where does the chain of events that actually make it possible for animals that turn into us kick in? Can you just give us some, some sort of timeline on what these events are and how they fit into our evolutionary history? Sure. I start with the asteroid impact, which I think most people have heard of 66 million years ago, because the more we understand about life before and after the impact, in fact, from the fossil record, the more we appreciate that had this event not happened, the fate of mammals is very unclear. Mammals had been around for probably 100 million years at that time, but life on land was dominated by the great dinosaurs. After the dinosaurs were wiped out because of the ecological catastrophe that that asteroid triggered, mammals that were small really took off. And in fact, only last year, uh, there was a treasure trove of fossils unearthed in Colorado here in North America to really show how rapidly mammals took off sort of once dinosaurs were out of the picture. And eventually those mammals branch into the modern forms we know in all the different groups, including primates. So we understand without that cosmological event, uh, six-mile-wide space rock that was probably circling the solar system for four billion years. Without that accident, we're not having this conversation. 
And the margins of that accident are fascinating. It's, you know, it's one thing to sort of say we're all here by accident. It's kind of glib. But when you get to the specificity of these events, I think that's where some of the power comes from. And that asteroid, had it, for example, entered the Earth's atmosphere maybe 30 minutes sooner and landed in the Atlantic or 30 minutes later and landed in the Pacific, probably didn't tr- wouldn't trigger a mass extinction. It's where it hit matters. And so you're looking at a one in 500 million year event in terms of an asteroid of that size. And it just happened to hit a piece of the earth that could trigger really a reset of of all of life on earth. What about things that have come since then? Because we know that the earth's climate has been a a very changeable thing over over tens of thousands to millions of years. It's it's changed a lot, hasn't it? We've had ice ages, we've had warm periods, we've had the Earth having the poles completely melted at certain points in our evolutionary and geological history. So how does Great. that overlay on this? Great point. I want to tee this up to Lee as well. The last two million years, we've been in one of the most volatile cycles of the last 300 million. The, the ice ages, which the onset of which was a couple million years ago, this is an incredibly volatile cycle where you not only have ice sheets advancing and retreating. But really in places like East Africa, it's not so much about temperature as it is about wet, dry. And from the paleontological record, we understand that our ancestors lived through, speaking a little bit longer terms over the centuries or millennia, incredibly dynamic climatic cycles. And it's a widespread view that our large brains were really the result of selection for our ability to craft our own habitats. And so that the ice ages had a lot to do with the pace and direction of of human evolution. Lee? Well, you know, it's so funny because we keep running into our understanding from ancient DNA and how we're we're having to recraft everything we know. And I think it's very exciting to think of the these chance events. And, And they also include now the idea that, you know, what was a simple story of human evolution 10 years ago, we had a very pat idea of how we actually evolved in almost a ladder like phenomena. Maybe it was a tree, but it wasn't a very a bushy tree. Now, tree isn't even a good model. We're looking at hybridization. We're seeing that at any one moment in the past that we have all of these different species and very really different species like Homo naledi, Neanderthals, the hobbits, and large-brained Homo sapiens all existing at the same time. And it may be just chance encounters that are occurring at any moment between two of these that allows a hybridization event. Ten years ago, we thought Homo sapiens was a just this purebred racehorse out of Africa, and we were destined to dominate this world because of our large brains. Now we know we're this mongrel full of all kinds of other DNA and messed up, and likely almost all of that was chance through chance meeting of species, some of it driven by climate, some of it driven by uh, catastrophe, and some of it just in our genes. Well, since you've brought it up, this is a very good opportunity to to sort of highlight another story that emerged this week. Scientists say people who inherited genes from Neanderthal ancestors, ancestors rather, may be more susceptible to a severe case of COVID-19. That was the news out in the last week or so. A paper in Nature showed that people who have severe coronavirus infection have genes from Neanderthals. So let's unpack this a little bit then. First of all, Lee, you can tell us, Neanderthals, how do they differ from anatomically modern humans like you, me and Sean and Theo? So so Neanderthals are both a lot like us and a lot different from us. And they're more robustly built. They're shorter. They're stockier. And they were considered an absolutely separate species. In fact, scientists used to get in bone fights over whether or not we wouldn't run away from each other and they'd ever even met or 
And then ancient DNA came along, and that plays into this story because we mapped out the Neanderthal genome, and suddenly we found out that most humans, including many Africans, have uh, some levels of Neanderthal DNA, something between you know one percent and five percent within us, and that's where this story comes in. And Sean, would you judge that in the book as a fortunate event, the interbreeding of us with Neanderthals or not? When it comes to coronavirus, it sounds like it might not be. Might not be. No one can tell the future. And so really, you know, natural selection only operates in the present. So probably the reason why this block of DNA is in a significant number of humans is that there was some positive selection for it. But now here's this new pathogen and it's a disadvantage. And that's a very common story about human genetics. We know, for example, that there's a very rare variant that makes people impervious to HIV. The HIV virus is perhaps a century old, but this variant we can find in Bronze Age bodies buried in Europe. So these genetic variants have been around for a long time, and perhaps they were favored by certain other pathogens. You know, they may have conveyed resistance to other pathogens, but now they're either advantageous or disadvantageous to new ones that come along now. Theo, you... What's your reading of Sean's fortunate events? He made reference to our parents' gonads, and he's getting at basically the rearrangements of of genes in there that render us unique on Earth, unless we have a twin or we've cloned ourselves. Yeah, so this notion that although we're initially taught that genes all behave independently, but actually they're inherited in blocks along chromosomes that are inherited together simply by proximity. And this example of the piece of Neanderthal DNA that seems to have an effect on COVID resistance, who knows what genes it may carry or why it was selected for at some point during evolution. At this point, we don't know. We just know that there's a a linked sort of box of, of DNA that's come to us from our Neanderthal ancestors and seems to be sort of differently distributed among different groups on Earth at the moment and may even underlie some of the difference in susceptibility to COVID. But really, we're very early in in understanding that story, I would say. Lee, do we have any idea why those Neanderthals had those genes and what they did for them? The first answer to that is a flat-out no, we have no idea. And the second answer to that is a lot more complex. No, they didn't have to have an advantage. They might have just been there and we might just carry them. We need to be cautious about direct attribution, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, um, because it, there's, as Theo would absolutely know, I'm sure, you, we're inundated with these ideas, and we, we don't know this right now. It'll have to prove the test of time. Don't think that if you carry Neanderthal DNA that you're at some higher risk of of this, or if you don't, you're at lesser risk. You know, Keep wearing your mask. Keep social distancing. Those are the things that work until we get a vaccine. And Sean Carroll, uh, the author of A Series of Fortunate Events, I suppose it was another fortunate event that you were able to come on our programme today. So thank you for joining us and thanks for, for telling us about the book. What do you think the next most fortunate event is going to be? A vaccine? Yeah, well, that's not fortune. That's just science. Scientists working very hard and I have a little inside insight to that through a documentary film that we're making. And, uh, you know, there are people whose names you don't know who've been working tirelessly round the clock an unprecedented challenge to develop this vaccine. So I think uh, that's a nice side effect of our big brains is the practice of of biomedical science. So hopefully that'll get us all in person in 2021. Let's hope so. Sean, thanks very much. That's Sean Carroll.
David Attenborough has a new documentary out. It's called A Life on Our Planet. The natural world is fading. The evidence is all around. It's happened in my lifetime. I've seen it with my own eyes. This film is my witness statement and my vision for the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake and how, if we act now, we can yet put it right. Well, with us is the film's executive producer, WWF, that's World Wildlife Fund conservationist Colin Butfield. Colin, welcome to the programme. Can you set the scene for us? Obviously, we've heard David Attenborough saying this is his witness statement in the clip we just heard there. But what actually does the film cover? What's the point it's seeking to make? Well, when making the film, we realised sort of very, very early on that David has had this extraordinary life. He's um, because of um, the time he was born and the job he had. We figured that he's probably seen more of the natural world than any other human being who has ever lived or, or will ever live. Because before him, obviously, there's no air travel, and now so much of the natural world has been lost. That the unique life he's had means he's seen something that nobody else has seen. And in the process of doing so, of course, he's witnessed this enormous scale of change on our planet, probably a bigger change to the natural world than any other time in the last 10,000 years. So he has a unique witness, a unique perspective as a result of that. And that that was a very appealing storytelling lens, because I think when we talk about these massive global changes, it's quite hard for people to to understand, to grasp. It feels huge. Putting it in the context of one human's lifetime makes that somehow easier to understand. What will a viewer actually see? How have you done this? Because obviously, Sir Dave is now in his 10th decade. He can't travel in the way that he once did. So how have you managed to capture the spirit of an Attenborough doco and do it in a way that brings people the action and has very much his fingerprint on it? Well, it's interesting, even though you're quite right, David's 94, he's 92, 93 when we were making this, um, he still did travel out to Kenya, to the Mara, to Masai Mara, um, someone he'd been to many times in the past to sort of show what's changed, and also out to Chernobyl, which obviously is a very different landscape and environment for him. But um, we start and end the film in Chernobyl and showing the change that's happened there from obviously the human civilization effectively being evacuated and left to destroy to nature reclaiming the territory. And we intersperse those sort of location shots with um, some archive going back to his famous sequences in his career and also footage from today that shows some of those changes. So examples being uh, he's one of the first people to film and present from coral reefs. And then we've shown the modern footage of, of the same coral reefs bleaching. We've got footage of him in Borneo. 40 years ago, um, finding orangutans, and then footage of Borneo today and showing what's changed there. So you get that sort of um, juxtaposition of what he saw then and what he saw now. But also, of course, being David Attenborough, he's got his obviously his great expertise is in the natural world. So when describing even changes that are very human centric, he often uses examples of nature to illustrate that. One example would be that um, when talking about the impact of, of meat consumption on, on the natural world, he chose to explain it from the Serengeti and explaining the context of the ratio of predator to prey animals and how much space prey animals need. There's 100 prey animals on the Serengeti for every predator, and therefore the space that's needed effectively to produce meat protein, using that to illustrate the changes that are happening in the human world. So we were able to have the gorgeous wildlife sequences and place lots of them in a very human context. There is this phenomenon dubbed the Attenborough effect. When David Attenborough highlights something, it usually galvanises attention and, and hopefully also translates into action. The best example being 
plastics, for example. Are there any things that you have purposefully picked for this one, which you're thinking we want to provoke people, we want to to highlight very important issues and make people change? Because it was obvious with the plastic doco that if you show that cause and effect, you immediately show people what they need to do to try to help. Have you done anything similar with this one? Yeah, the two things we really, really wanted to get across in this were probably the biggest tipping point issues facing our planet. So the biggest places where things will go into freefall, the changes are happening so fast. Those two examples are the change in the Arctic sea ice and how fast the world's warming, very visually showing the change that's happened during David's filming career, actually not even just his lifetime, going to visit locations where you would expect to be surrounded by ice and obviously the wildlife that is on the ice and uses the ice for hunting and the ice not being there. And the second one was was tropical forests, in particular how fast tropical forests have been declining, showing that the Amazon in particular as an example is approaching a tipping point where it's the amount of rain that's needed to self-sustain that that rainforest is being lost through lack of rainfall and also deforestation and fires. And it faces a moment where it might tip into a, a, a dry savannah. So, and then placing those issues back to ourselves, in particular, highlighting levels of meat consumption and investment in things like fossil fuels. So although the, each of those things are a bit more complex than purely a plastic bottle um, or plastic carrier bag, which has obviously had a big effect because it's extremely tangible what each one of us can do and what that impact is i think here we wanted to get a sense of the whole scale of the destabilization of our planet and what we need to do to stabilize it again and that's a bigger more complex thing but i hope and feel and certainly the reaction in the first few days seems to suggest we've got we've got something across lee you've made quite a few films in your case with national geographic about your work it really does work to galvanise attention around an issue, doesn't it? I mean, have you found that interest in paleoanthropology, interest in, in our human story, and therefore people's sort of sense of guardianship of the planet has improved through what you've done, making tele-programmes that bring the science to people? Oh, it absolutely does. It, it, there's probably no more effective way to, to reach millions and millions of people with, with messaging. And, but just to follow on what was being talked about that Sir David's done here, you know, we're, we're living in a world that's seen the cost of 8 billion human beings. COVID, the destruction of natural habitats, the cost to all other living things. And we need messages like this now because this is going to be the new norm. It isn't going to be waiting around for viruses when we reach 9 billion and 10 billion and 12 billion consuming humans. We we have to make choices and we have to do it right now. Leo? Chris, if, yes, I mean, I, I find this particularly poignant because I was a teenager when David Attenborough's Life on Earth came out. And it was the thing when I was asked at university interviews, what made you want to study science? That was my answer. I think he changes a lot of people's lives and is really determined now, even in his 10th decade, to keep changing our attitude to the natural world it's really very inspiring and colin are you able to to sort of capitalize on the program in other ways beyond just sort of making a program and educating people are there other ways in which you can then take the momentum that's created and then build on that to get more change or to get more activity off the back of it Yes, I think there is. I mean, one of the things that's happened already in only a couple of days since we've released it is various big companies, as well as 
members of the government getting in touch with us and asking us to host screenings and, and to, to share it with employees or with politicians. And I think you find, and hopefully we're going to find with this one, but you, you certainly find with documentaries, that it can be an interesting moment to provoke a conversation within companies and, and governments where change can be made. So it lightning rods an issue that perhaps many people have been talking about for quite some time and gives a focal point, a moment where it feels we must respond to this. And that's a sort of sense that we're getting at the moment. I mean, it's early days, but it feels like there's a moment where employees are asking their bosses what we can do about this. How Surely we've got to address these issues. And it's not just from one documentary, but it's from a, a building of, of, of this drumbeat over time. And then a documentary like this, particularly if, if fronted by David, tends to have a flashpoint that draws a lot of attention and, 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 and forces people to make a statement one, one way or the other towards it. And Lee, is there anything we can learn from what happened to our ancestors that might help to focus minds today we think that obviously every experience we're having is unique is there evidence that actually our ancestors went through times when the planet was under stress obviously not of their making like the present situation is in our case but the outcome could nevertheless be the same i think that the thing that humans should take away from the idea of studying the human historic past is that we should lose our arrogance. Extinction is the norm. There have been dozens and dozens of our closest relatives with brains like ours, with adaptations like ours, that have existed through the last of millions of years, and they are all gone. And we can go that way too. Theo, any passing thoughts from you? It's a pretty poignant and sobering note from, from Lee to sort of finish on. I, I, I'm more of an optimist, and I hope that the human ingenuity that has got us into this terrible pickle will help get us out again. Let's hope so. Colin, look, it's been great to have you join us. We hope the documentary goes well. Thanks very much for, for joining us to share your experiences of making it. That's Colin Butfield. Uh, he's the executive producer on Sir David Attenborough's new documentary that's just out is also with the WWF. And we have to leave it there. I've got to say thank you very much, though, to you for listening at home. And also thanks to the people who joined us this week as our guests. Those were Charlotte Summers, Victoria Gill, Jim Gazard, Sean Carroll and Colin Butfield, who you just heard there. And thanks to our very special guests who joined us across the hour, Lee Berger and Theo Bloom. Now, next time, you can join us for a walk in the forest. We're going to look at the science of trees from their lives and how a young tree is born right through to how they die, what secrets are hiding in the woods. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.